Let's go ahead and get our Bibles out to the Gospel of John, chapter 20. If you don't have a Bible, you're more than welcome to use the Black Pew Bible in front of you. And you're also welcome to take it home and make good use of it. I won a car at Disneyland on my fourth birthday. It was amazing. I walked up onto this large platform at the entrance of the park. I pulled a long, dazzling lever, and then, well, magic happened. The lights on the platform went crazy. Smoke came up out of the ground. Confetti fell from the ceiling. Music started blasting through the speakers. Mascots started dancing all around me. And then like magic, the floor opened up in a brand new, shiny, spinning, aquamarine, geostorm hatchback presented itself. Glory. It was a real spectacle. If I were to plan something like the resurrection of the Son of God, I would plan it like that. There would be thousands of people around with lights and confetti and smoke and music and people dancing and singing as Jesus got up out of the grave. It would be a huge public celebration. It would be a spectacle unlike anything you've ever seen. We're talking about the resurrection of the Son of God. The resurrection of the Son of God was the vindication of the Son of God. The resurrection was the Father's amen to Jesus' statement on the cross that it is finished. Mission accomplished. Promise kept. The resurrection was a display of God's victory over sin and death and hell and Satan and every bad thing that has ever happened in this fallen world. We talk a lot about the life and death of Jesus in the church, as we should. But much of the apostles' earliest preaching was centered on the resurrection. So just listen to this from Acts chapter 4. Luke says, And with great power the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. So, the resurrection is a big deal. It's the biggest deal. Without the resurrection, the cross, the great symbol of our faith, is meaningless. It's powerless. Without the resurrection, there is no gospel. There's no salvation. There's no hope. There's no Anything. Paul puts it like this in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. He says, If Christ has not been raised, then our preaching, which includes my preaching and your listening this morning, is in vain. And your faith is in vain. We are found to be misrepresenting God, which is just a nice way of saying we lie about God. Because we have testified about God that he raised Christ, 
whom he did not raise, if it is true indeed that the dead are not raised. If Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins. Let this linger for a moment in your heart. The resurrection of Jesus from the dead is the beginning of the recreation of the entire universe. In Genesis 1, everything was created and everything was good. In Genesis 3, everything went bad. What do we do? How are we going to fix this? God made a promise that he would fix it. The resurrection is the proof that God has kept his promise to make all things new. And yet, as we move out of John 19, the study of the cross, and as we move into John 20, the study of the resurrection, we find no music, no confetti, no lights, no pomp, no ceremony. There's not even any daylight. Verse 1 tells us that the empty tomb was discovered by Mary while it was still dark outside which means that it was very, very early in the morning and no one was around to see it because they were all still asleep. Oh, and by the way, speaking of Mary, it should not be lost on us that she was the first and therefore the most important witness to the resurrection. And God chose a woman to be the witness who in these times would not have had a credible testimony if her testimony would have been called to be given in the court. This is not how I would have planned the resurrection of the Son of God. But then again, the wisdom of God is foolishness to man. So here's what this morning's sermon is going to look like. We're going to start with just a brief overview of the story of the resurrection, just to make sure we're sort of gleaning all of the details. And then we're going to consider six things from the story that God wants us to learn and apply to our lives. So let me pray for help. And then we'll do that. Father God, the same power that you used to raise Jesus from the dead and that you used to raise our sinful hearts from the dead and that you will one day use to resurrect us to new life forever, that same power, we need it right now this morning. There is death lingering in our bodies. This flesh is gnawing at us. We are tempted to distraction, to disinterest, to disagree with your word when it confronts us, when it touches us, right where we don't want to be touched. So God, we pray that as your word convicts us and heals us and helps us, that we will have ready and happy hearts, ready to receive every good thing that you have for us this morning. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So let's start with our brief overview of the story. Uh, I'm just going to be referencing the verse numbers. You can feel free to look down in your Bibles as we go, but I'm going to be moving at a pretty good clip, okay? So starting in verse 1, we see the resurrection of Jesus and that it happened on a Sunday, the first day of the week. Mary Magdalene was the first to find the empty tomb. What was she doing there so early in the morning? We're not really told. My guess is that she was probably there to pray. Upon finding an empty tomb, Mary runs to go tell Peter and John, the two disciples who throughout this whole event have 
tried to stay closer to Jesus. So Mary tells the disciples that she suspects foul play, grave robbers, perhaps. Not an uncommon thing in the ancient world. Was it the Jews wanting to make sure that the body of Jesus could not then be venerated as a martyr? Was it some other fiendish character? Mary doesn't know. All that she knows is that the body of her master is gone. Peter and John rush to the scene to investigate. It's a bit bit of a foot race. John tells us that he's faster than Peter, which is probably why Jesus loves him more. Right? And then I love the detail that we get in verse 5. John tells us that he had to stoop to look into the tomb. That's the kind of detail that you only really get from someone who was actually there. So anyways, John looks in, but he doesn't go in. He's a little guarded, cautious. Peter finally shows up, out of breath, winded, legs exhausted. He's like, John, what are you doing? Classic Peter. Let's go. They go inside. They start looking around the tomb. Once they're inside, John and Peter see that Jesus' burial linens are folded up neatly. This messes up the whole grave robber theory because when you steal dead bodies, you don't typically take the time to fold up the linens and put them back neatly in their place. You don't even do that at Old Navy when you try on a shirt, and you, right? So John and Peter, is that just me? You fold it back. Okay. So John and Peter, they now believe Mary's account. Yep, uh, the body is not here. And then they don't really know what to do next, so they just go home. But not Mary. Mary's like one of those, those sad dogs who sits by the owner's grave whimpering. She doesn't want to leave. She doesn't know where to go. She doesn't know what to do. She's, she's weeping over the desecration of her dead Lord's grave, which has been robbed Until, for whatever reason, she decides to look inside the grave for herself. And when she goes inside, she meets two angels. Why didn't the angels reveal themselves to John and Peter? That's an interesting question. Either way, the angels reveal themselves to Mary. And they ask Mary why she's crying. She says, because they've taken, his, they've taken his body. And at this moment, Mary spins around to find a man in the tomb with her. She is obviously startled. She doesn't recognize Jesus, which is not uncommon after the resurrection, but it's dark. She's been crying. Who knows what kind of ordinary factors are at play here? Why doesn't she recognize Jesus? And then Jesus asks her the same question that the angels did. Why are you crying? This is kind of a common theme in the Bible. People asking questions that we sort of all know the answer to in order to elicit a sort of thoughtful response and consideration from the person being asked this question. And then something incredible happens. Jesus calls out to Mary by name. When Mary hears her master call her name, she finally sees Jesus For exactly who he is. She rushes to Jesus. She calls him Rabboni. Which you're like I thought the word was Rabbi. Right? Is this like an Italianized version of the word? 
No, Rabboni was the term most often used of God in Jewish literature when they were referring to God as teacher. So Mary, in seeing the resurrected Christ, realizes that everything is true. Jesus is not just some earthly rabbi. He is her divine rabbi. And then it seems like, based on verse 17, Mary takes a hold of Jesus. Uh, John doesn't tell us what it was like. Maybe it was a big hug. Maybe she fell at his feet and grabbed his ankles. We don't know. But Mary is crying and clinging desperately to her master. And we don't know how much time passes between, you know, verse 16 and verse 17 and verse 18. But we know that by verse 17, Jesus is telling Mary, hey, Mary, I love you, but you got to let me go because we still have work to do. Right. He tells Mary her first assignment is to go and tell the disciples the good news. Jesus is alive. And Mary does as she's told. She goes to the disciples. She declares the good news that Jesus is resurrected from the grave. And the word that John uses to describe what Mary does here when she talks to the disciples, it's, it's angelusa, which sounds some, like another word you know, right? Angel. Angels are God's messengers. So Jesus commissions Mary to be the first gospel messenger in the post-resurrection covenant community of God. And then the scene switches in verse 19. In verse 19, we find the disciples hiding from the Jews, which it makes sense, right? You would hope that they would be braver, but listen, the Jewish leaders would probably be after them because when you put out a campfire, you don't leave the burning embers sitting around the campsite. When you go in and cut out a tumor from a person's body, you don't leave little cancerous bits still hanging around in the flesh. You don't kill the Messiah and then leave all of his disciples to carry on his legacy and promote his martyrdom in Israel. So the disciples are hiding behind this locked door. And then Jesus shows up. Right, he, he just shows up in their midst. The, the text doesn't really tell us how Jesus gets in the room. Did he walk through a wall? Did he go through a locked door? It's amazing to me how much time people spend investigating this. It's like, dude, either way, like he was dead, now he's alive. Uh, a locked door, it's not really, you know, like he's going to get in, you know. So Jesus immediately shows the disciples his wounds so that they'll know it's really him. And interestingly, Thomas is not present for this display. More on that in a moment. So the disciples, they're glad to see their master alive and well. And without wasting any time, Jesus immediately puts them on mission. He gives them a, a dose of the Holy Spirit, which is kind of like a foreshadow of Pentecost, when the Spirit will fall more powerfully and obviously for the sake of the Great Commission. And then Jesus sends the disciples out to preach the gospel of God's forgiveness to a lost and dying world. But then there's Thomas, right? The, one of the twelve, a key figure in building up the church, he wasn't there for all of that. 
So the other disciples, when they find Thomas, they tell him the whole thing. Oh, you wouldn't believe it. The door was locked. We thought he was gone. But then he shows up, holes in his hands, holes in his side. To which Thomas replies, you're right. I don't believe it. The disciples, if I can imagine, you know, just hope this is an embellishment, but I'm just trying to imagine what this conversation is like. And they're like, you don't believe us. What do you mean? You don't, how can you not believe us? Right? To which Thomas might reply, well, it's, it's easy. You know, I'll believe that he's alive when I can actually put my finger in the hole in his side. Which is really Thomas's way of saying, listen, you guys are crazy. Right? Like, it was a good run. And, man, we really thought he was the Messiah, but I saw him on the cross. He's dead. Let it go. We... We were wrong, okay? He's dead. That's that. That's the end of it. And then for reasons that maybe the disciples probably couldn't understand, Jesus lets Thomas stew in his unbelief for eight days. My guess is so that when he showed him uh, and gave him the gift of faith, that it would hit all the more powerfully. Eight days of angst and fear, and depression. Then in verse 26, when all the disciples are together again, Jesus shows up and he invites Thomas to put his finger where the nails once held him to the cross and where the spear once made its way into his body. When this happens, Thomas just comes undone. The great dam of hope and fear and longing and expectation, it just breaks in his heart and he cries out, my Lord and my God. And like, I'm like, it's really you. It's really you. That's what I would say. And that's basically the story in John chapter 20. Point number one, the resurrection fulfills scripture. We talked a lot about scriptural fulfillment last week. We said that all throughout John chapter 19, John is bending over backwards to show us how the death of Jesus fulfills all the plans and the promises and the prophecies of the Old Testament. Well, the same thing is true in chapter 20. Look at verse 9 of chapter 20. <coughs> it says, For as of yet they did not understand the scripture that he must rise from the dead. They did not understand the scripture. Remember, John did not write this gospel without headings, excuse me, with headings and chapter numbers. So when John talks about the resurrection being a fulfillment of scripture in chapter 20, he's doing the exact same thing he was doing in John chapter 19 when he talked about the death of Christ being the fulfillment of scripture. Here's what you need to see in this point. None of the promises about Jesus' death would matter at all if Jesus never got up out of the grave. A dead Savior is not a victorious Savior. But the prophecies and promises about the Messiah were that he would not only reign victorious on the cross through his death, but also through the resurrection from the grave. You cannot reign as a forever king if you only live for 33 years, you have to be resurrected. Our God is not a God of halfway promises. 
a Savior who doesn't get up out of the grave is no Savior at all. So just stop and consider what this means for your soul. The scriptures say that if we have been buried with Christ, then we will also be raised with Christ. Why? Because God is not a God of halfway promises. Christ was buried and he was raised. You have died to your sins. You will be resurrected to newness of life. If you're here and you're like, I wonder why Christians care so much about all that baptism stuff. Well, it's something that we do right as we begin our faith journey with Jesus, right after we get saved, that declares to the church, to ourselves, to the entire world, that God is not a God of halfway promises. That we have died to our flesh, but we have also been resurrected to newness of life. It is not enough to just be dead to sin. That is a half of a promise. We must also be alive to Christ. You notice that this is the way that scripture talks, right? It doesn't just say put off the old. What else does it say? Put on the new. We must not only cease from unrighteousness. We must also put on the righteousness of Christ in every area of our lives. This is why Paul talks like this in Romans chapter 6 verse 1. He says, you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive. To God in Christ Jesus. Point number two. The resurrection brings family. Look at verse 17. Verse 17. So Jesus said to her, Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father, but go to my brothers. And say to them, I am ascending to the Father, excuse me, to my Father and your Father. To my God and your God. So Jesus tells Mary to go preach the gospel to his brothers. Who are the the brothers of Jesus? It's the disciples. The disciples who are the servants of Jesus have now become the brothers of Jesus. In Ephesians chapter 1, we're told that the gospel allows God to adopt sinners like us into his family. Sin made us orphans in the world. But then praise God, he adopts us through Jesus. In the story of the gospel, we see that all of humanity is lost. All of us must pass through death. The question is, will any of us come out on the other side of death? And in Jesus, we see the answer is yes. He is the first person to pass through death and come out on the other side reborn. What that means is that in this new family that God is creating, Jesus is the firstborn son. He is the elder brother in the family. And he's calling all of us by his grace to come be his little brothers and sisters. But that's not even the best part. Now listen, as an only child, I love the idea of having uh, a big brother and having a bunch of siblings and, and all that stuff. But, but Jesus also says that because of the resurrection, God is now our father, right? He says, go and tell them that I have to go back to my father and your father. Je- Jesus has not been talking like this throughout his gospel. He, he has not been saying your father. All throughout John's gospel, he's been saying things like God is 
my Father. I know God in a very special way that you can't know him because of sin. He's been saying things like, you are of your father, the devil, because you walk and talk and act like your dad. But not me. I walk and talk and act like my dad. There's a hard line of division there created by sin and rebellion. As my kids would say, that's rude. Not very tolerant of Jesus to say that we're not part of the family. And if the story would have ended like that, it would be intolerant. It would not be very flattering. It would not be a very beautiful message. But the very first thing that Jesus commissions his very first missionary to declare is that God has made a way for us to come into his family. He says, my dad is now going to be your dad. I grew up without a father. I wanted one so bad. If I'm being honest, at 36 years old, I still want a father so bad. It's getting a little harder the older I get to hope that an older man will take me under his wing and tell me to call him dad. But when I was a kid, the, the worst, most painful experiences of, of not having a father, the, the worst, most painful experiences of father hunger were when I would see a kid who had a really good dad, right? Uh, I would be so jealous. I wanted him to be my dad. He shouldn't be your dad. He should be my dad. And I hoped foolishly. I hoped that maybe somehow, some way, one of these dads would see me without a dad and then just come along and say, hey, buddy, I'm going to be your dad too. And that's what Jesus did for us when he got out of the grave. We were orphans in desperate need of a heavenly father. And Jesus comes along and he says, hey, guess what, man? My dad's going to be your dad. And you're going to love it. And we're going to hang out and do karate in the garage. And it's going to be family night forever. Point number three. The resurrection brings life. Look back at verse 1. <clears throat> now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early, while it was still dark, and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. The resurrection is presented in all four Gospels as occurring on the first day of the week, Sunday. Why? Well, I know it's weird for us because Sunday kind of feels like the last day of the week, right? Then the week kind of starts on Monday. But Sunday is the first day of creation. It is the day of light and life. Do you remember all the way back in chapter 1? In chapter 1 of John's Gospel, the first day of creation is, is when God speaks light and life into the universe, which is dark and without life. God says, let there be life, and, excuse me, light, and there was. And with the light came life. And John talks about that in verse 4 of chapter 1 like this. In Christ was life, and the life was the light of men. So just all throughout scripture, we have this connection between Light and life and death and darkness. And we see that last part, the darkness, come 
pretty powerfully in chapter 3 of Genesis. Sin plunges all of God's good, light-filled creation, including our hearts, back into the dark abyss. Darkness, in a sense, covers the face of the earth for millennia until one day a baby is born in a manger in Bethlehem. The first spark of recreation appears. You fast forward to the 20th chapter of John in verse 1 and we find the tomb of Jesus, the light of the world, shrouded in darkness because the light of the world has been snuffed out. It's like the fall all over again until the resurrection. John chapter 1 says it like this. The light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. Point number four. The resurrection brings doubt. The resurrection brings doubt. John chapter 20 is not just the, uh, the account of the resurrection. It's also the account of those who were the first to encounter the resurrected Christ. And guess what? It was a lot to swallow. It was difficult to believe, even for the disciples. You know, there's this strange sentiment among modern people that it must have somehow been easier for these ancient pre-scientific people to believe in resurrection. But I got news for you, friends. Even in ancient times, people didn't get up out of the grave. It's not a common thing. Thomas shows us that coming back from the dead was just as hard for an ancient person to wrap their minds around it uh, as it is for us. What we see in Thomas is that the same Enlightenment era empirical instincts of our day were alive and well 1,700 years before the Enlightenment. Thomas basically says, if I can't see it with my own eyes, then I won't believe it. In the book of Jude, God tells us to have mercy on those who doubt. That's in Jude chapter, uh, excuse me, Jude 22. Now, now, why does Jude take such a strong stance why does he tell us to have mercy on those who, who, who wrestle in their faith? Well, I think at least part of the reason is because of the way that Jesus is merciful to Thomas in his doubt. Jude learned from his master what it looks like to encounter those who want more than anything in the world to believe, but who are struggling to do so. When Thomas and Jesus encounter one another, Jesus doesn't get on to him. He doesn't, he doesn't scold him. Hey, loser, like, what? You, you don't believe the disciples? How could you not believe the disciples? Obviously, I was going to come back from the grave. Rather, he deals with him directly. He holds him accountable for his unbelief, and yet he's merciful in that accountability. He says, Thomas, listen, you shouldn't really need to touch my wounds in order to believe, but because I know you do, here I am. You can put your finger in my side. 
This reminds me of the account from Mark chapter 9. Do you remember that story of the father with the, with the, with the child who needed to be healed? The father approaches Jesus in desperation. He says, can you please, please heal my child? And Jesus says, yeah, if you, if you can believe, I, I will. And the guy's like, I believe, but help my unbelief. I really want to believe, but it's, it's a struggle. It's hard. And Jesus says, okay, I, I can work with that. And then Jesus heals the child. Friends, I want you to know this morning that God does not despise you because of your doubts. You should know that the Bible says that Jesus is our sympathetic high priest. He was tempted in every way like we are, including doubt. Doubt will come. That's normal. The mark of genuine saving faith is not a complete absence of doubt. If that were the case, then no one ever would be saved. If you ever meet a Christian who says that they've never had a second of doubt in their life, you know that they're guilty of lying. You know, you're maybe not be guilty of doubt, but you're guilty of lying, and you did doubt, so now you're guilty of two. Doubts will come. That's, that's, that's normal. What we have to focus on as Christians is, is the right handling of doubt in light of God's mercy to us in our doubt. So, my question for you is, how are you handling your doubt when you experience it? Do you, do you use your doubt to justify your sins? That one's pretty common. Young guy goes off to college, starts partying, living a crazy lifestyle, and wouldn't you know, all of a sudden, he has doubts about the authenticity of the Bible and the, the, the resurrection and so on and so forth. How are you dealing with your doubt? Are you using your doubts as an excuse to run away from God, or are you like the father from Mark 9, running to God with your doubts, confessing your doubts to God? If you're here this morning and you find yourself suspended between belief and unbelief, please know that God deals patiently with those who wrestle in the right direction. What do I mean by wrestle in the right direction? I think it's pretty easily illustrated in the story of Rob Bell and C.S. Lewis. Rob Bell was once a, a very popular megachurch pastor, had a huge ministry, books and podcasts and preaching engagements. And just as his ministry developed, you just kept seeing that he began to move further and further away from the gospel. And he, he would sort of ground it in questions of doubt. And he would just say, hey, I'm just being honest. I'm just asking questions. But you could see that what he was really hoping to do was to escape from the lordship of Jesus Christ. Now, in contrast, C.S. Lewis got saved later in life, and he did not hold completely orthodox views. His view of scripture, in my opinion, was pretty low, so low that I, I don't really love to recommend him or quote him from the pulpit because I don't think he inspires trust in the Bible. Having said that, he wrestled in the right direction. You could tell he wasn't trying to get away from the truth and binding nature of God's word. He was wrestling with it. And as he did, he went to God and hoped that God would give him greater clarity, truth, and conviction. 
Now, listen, sometimes pastors can be so eager to encourage the, the doubters in their midst, to encourage them, to strengthen them, that they can actually veer off on the other side of the road into unhelpfulness by treating doubt like a virtue, right? Friends, doubt is not a virtue. Unbelief is never virtuous. It is a sin. God is merciful to us in our sins and praise God. If he wasn't, we wouldn't have any hope. But we should not glamorize doubt as if it's a good thing. It is our flesh's sinful inability to see the light and life and glory of the resurrected Savior. That's bad. And it's something that needs to be put to death by the power of God's grace. In verse 29, we see that although Jesus is patient with us in our doubt, it is better to believe. Look at verse 29. <clears throat> Responding to Thomas's proclamation of faith, Jesus says, Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen me and yet believe. Jesus wants Thomas to know that, yes, he has been blessed to believe because he's been able to touch and see and smell and all that other stuff. But the blessing of those who believe what they can't see is greater still. Those who believe what they can't touch. Those who believe only by what they hear. Look at verses 30 and 31. Now, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these signs are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. That is what Paul is talking about in 2 Corinthians 5-7 when he says that we live by faith and not by sight. We can't see Jesus. We weren't there with the disciples when he was showing off his wounds. We didn't get to experience all of the miracles that the resurrected Christ was doing right after he got up from the grave. But John says the fact that these things have been recorded in the Bible is sufficient. It's all the evidence we need. If you say, God, oh, I would believe if only you would do a sign. God says, listen, I've been doing signs your whole life and you haven't believed. The Bible is enough. Preaching is enough. Speaking the word of truth with unbelievers around a dinner table is enough. John says that these things were written so that you may believe. What that means is that if you never had anything else other than God's word, you would have everything that you need to believe. Now, whether you choose to believe is another question. Jesus says that men love the darkness and hate the light because the light exposes their evil deeds. And no one likes to be exposed. I cannot help but think that this event, this Doubting Thomas event, was in the mind of Peter when he wrote these words in his first epistle. He says this, he says, Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy 
that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Point number five, the resurrection and the mission of God. The resurrection and the mission of God. <clears throat> this point is going to be very simple. If Jesus is still in the grave, we're all just wasting our lives. The church is just like every other religion out there. If Jesus is still in the grave, the church is like every other religion whose founder lived and died and never got up again. If Jesus is still in the grave, what are we doing here? Right? Because, listen, Plato, Aristotle, Socrates, uh, they're all dead. Muhammad is dead. The Buddha, if he ever really lived, is dead. Confucius is dead. Joseph Smith is dead. L. Ron Hubbard is dead. But not Jesus. Jesus is alive. And if that's true, then that means all of this is true. The whole story. Listen, I've had conversations with unbelievers where they go, and you're going to tell me that like, he got all those animals on that ark? How, you expect me to believe that? Listen, we can have conversations about the ark. We can have conversations about the history of the church and whether it's always lived up to the standards that it's preached. We can have that conversation. But none of that matters if Jesus is still in the grave. That's question number one. If Jesus got up out of the grave, we can deal with church history. Christian slave owners and you know the, the wars with Muslims, we can deal with all that. If Jesus got up out of the grave, we can have conversations about how Noah got those animals on that big boat. But you have to start here. Either Jesus is alive or he's not. And if he is alive, that means something for your life. It means, first of all, if you're a Christian, that you have been resurrected from the grave spiritually and that you will one day be resurrected from the grave Bodily, what that means is that every Christian lives through two resurrections. And what this morning's text tells us is that as soon as Jesus got up out of the grave, he told the disciples, you have a time frame between your first resurrection and your second resurrection where you're supposed to be on mission. You're supposed to go out and preach the gospel of the resurrection and live resurrected lives that give credence to the gospel that you preach. The first thing that Jesus told Mary to do was to go proclaim the resurrection. The first thing that Jesus told the disciples to do was to go proclaim the resurrection. Look at verse 21. Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. When I first got saved... I immediately began to evangelize. I just had to start telling people about Jesus. Nobody told me to do that. I mean, literally, like, I woke up, I immediately realized, whoa, 
Jesus is Lord, I'm a Christian, and I like made a beeline to go tell somebody about it. I might have stopped at the toilet first, but only for a moment. Why was I so eager to do that? Because I came into contact with the power of God. The same God who resurrected Jesus from the grave lifted me out of my grave, and I had to tell anyone who would listen. What Jesus says in this morning's text is that the Father sent him on a mission to save the world, and he did it. It's done. On the cross, he told us that. It is finished. And yet the mission needs to carry on. Well, how does it carry on? Christ is in heaven. It carries on through us. We fill up what was lacking in the afflictions of Christ. What that means is that Christ isn't here to preach the gospel because he's called us to preach the gospel. So I guess my practical application for you in this point would be how, how are you doing with that? Right? Well, Sean, I'm not a pastor. Yeah, you don't have to be a pastor to declare the gospel was Mary a pastor well Sean I'm just a delicate little flower I'm just a little old lady what no every single Christian has the capacity and has been commanded by the Lord to declare the gospel that Jesus got up out of the grave your unbelieving friends and family and co-workers and neighbors they need to hear this the only way that they're going to hear it is through you. Do you understand that? If you're praying that Jesus will appear in someone's living room like he did for the disciples, that's probably not going to happen. That was a very special event at a very special time in salvation history. The way that Jesus has chosen to reveal himself to those who are lost and dying in their sins is through you who are no longer lost and no longer dead. Now listen, I know that we all go through highs and lows when it comes to gospel enthusiasm. The excitement about the things of God has peaks and valleys. I get it. The joy of the Lord has seasons of decrease. Evangelism is harder some days than others. But friends, you, like Mary, are God's angels. Not the creatures, but the messengers. You're his ambassadors. It's not just that you have to declare the good news. You get to declare the good news. So if you've been in an evangelism slump lately, I, I just pray that by God's grace, this sermon will move you into a season of fresh, joyful, inspired gospel proclamation. And if you find yourself just utterly unable to tell anyone about the hope of the resurrection, it's possible that you might still be in the grave. And finally, we come to point six. The resurrection brings peace. <coughs> you remember the upper room discourse from chapter 14? Jesus' final words to his disciples the night before his crucifixion were in that upper room. And one of the last things that Jesus said to them, uh, well, these words right here. He says, peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. I do not give to you as the world gives. 
do not let your hearts be troubled and do not be afraid. Mm. Now look at chapter 20, verse 19. On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews. When Jesus first appears to the disciples, he finds them cowering in fear. He told them, you don't have to be afraid. You can have peace. But when he appears to them, he finds them utterly lacking in peace, which is why the first words that Jesus speaks to them are so loaded with significance. He shows up and he says, peace be with you. I know for us that just sounds like something that some like religious guy just goes around saying, you know, peace be with you, peace be with you, peace be with you. No, this was a very existential moment for the disciples. Their master was dead. They heard that he might be alive. They're cowering in fear. They have no peace. Jesus told them to have peace. They have no peace. Jesus shows up and he says, you don't have to be afraid. You don't have to be afraid. This encounter is emblematic of Jesus's entire ministry. His name is the Prince of Peace. As the old Christmas song tells us, he brings peace on earth, which implies, of course, that we need somehow, some way to have peace imparted to us from outside of us. And that is true. We need that. Scripture is clear. Jesus says that we love the darkness and hate the light. God is the darkness, we are the light. Or, excuse me, God is the light, we are the darkness. That was close. Did I still mess it up on the second time? Nice, thanks Adam. Romans 8 says that the natural man is at enmity with God. We don't really use the word enmity a lot. It basically just means at war. The book of James tells us that the natural man is friends with the world and therefore is an enemy of God. You take all this together, and what you get is a mosaic of hostility, hatred, strife, enmity, war. What this means is that without Jesus, there is no peace with God. None whatsoever. There is only justice and wrath and judgment. And if we were innocent, that wouldn't be bad news. But we are not innocent. So what are we to do? Well, the answer is found in verse 23. Look at verse 23. Jesus tells the apostles, if you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. And if you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. Now, um, some of our Roman Catholic friends have used this verse to... Uh, they've applied it to the priesthood and they say that Roman Catholic priests have the ability to forgive sins and to absolve and you probably, you know, confessionals and so on and so forth. And, and I understand how they get there, but friends, that's not what Jesus is saying here. And one of the ways that I can show you that without getting into a big, long, protracted sort of argument from scripture is you can just see this in the way that the apostles preach about forgiveness in the book of Acts, right? If you ever wonder, what did the apostles 
think about these words from Jesus. How did they understand Jesus when he said these things? All you have to do is look at their ministry in the book of Acts. You'll see it clearly. So in the book of Acts, as the apostles go out to preach, they never say, I can forgive you or I can withhold forgiveness. What do they say? Acts chapter 2. Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins. Acts chapter 5. God exalted him at his right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. Acts chapter 8. Repent, therefore, and pray to the Lord that, if possible, you may be forgiven. I mean, that's just prime time. If the apostles had this sort of unilateral spiritual authority to say you're forgiven, they would have done it right there. But that's not what they said. What they say in chapter 8 is the same thing that they say in chapter 2 and chapter 5 and chapter 10 and chapter 13 and chapter 26, that they are merely heralding a gospel that says that God has made a way for you to be forgiven if you turn away from your sins and trust in Jesus. Friends, what, what you need to see here is that peace with God can only come to you through the forgiveness of sins. That's the only way. If you, if you aren't feeling peace in your life, it's probably because you don't have peace with God. And if you don't have peace with God and you're wondering, like, why don't I have peace with God? It's super simple. It's sin. It's, it's rebellion. But the good news is that God made a way for us to fix that. I just want to ask you this morning, aren't you ready for peace? Aren't you tired of living this life of war? God has built this world. He's designed it to be good. He's put you in it and told you to live a certain way, and you're just fighting him every step of the way. And every time you fight him and live out of sync with his good design, your life gets harder and harder. There's more fear, more anxiety, less peace, and you just go, I, I wonder what could be the cause. I know, I've been there. Here's the thing, friends. Here's something you, you really need to understand. We all need to understand this. Life is war. Life is war. No matter what, your life is going to be hard. You're American, praise God. Your life's not as going to be as hard as people who live in the slums of India. But life is war. Your family can't protect you from it. Your money cannot insulate you from it. Your entertainment cannot distract you from it. But Jesus tells us that we can either be at war with the world or we can be at war with God. If you choose to be at war with God, you're going to lose and you're going to lose forever. But if you choose to be at war with the world, you'll be at peace with God. And even though it'll be hard in the here and now, You'll have victory, you'll have joy, you'll have a semblance of peace. All of that is pointing towards something greater to come one day. Perfect joy, perfect peace, absolute victory. If only we will accept the terms of peace that our king has offered us. As I was trying to figure out how to end a sermon, which is, it's always the hardest part, you know. It's like, just 90% of the job, get it done, great. And then hopefully God does a miracle for the last 10%. But as I was thinking about the end of this sermon, I just couldn't 
help but think about how good this gospel story is. Just how amazing it is. And the more I think about it, it really is too good to be true. What God is promising us is the real happily ever after. The journey to the happily ever after will not be an easy one. There will be witches and goblins and mud bogs and quicksands and scary forests and wolves and enemies along the way. If you are a Christian, you will have to pick up your cross and die daily. And it's never easy. You will have to fight the world, the flesh, and the devil. And life will be war. But if you follow Jesus, the one who has already passed through the terrors that lie before you, you will know peace in the happily ever after. Let's pray. What we need most in this world, God, is something that we cannot give ourselves. Even as we go and, and have lunch after this service, we pray that you'll help us to be reminded through the food that we consume that we need help from outside of ourselves in order to live. Lord, in the same way that you provide for us our daily bread, we pray that you'll provide for us our spiritual bread so that we can feast on your son, Jesus Christ, and live forever in him. In his name we pray. Amen. Amen.